0: you're about to hear a message that was preached at calvary fellowship in miramar florida at calvary we exist to help people take their next step with god and we pray that this message helps you do just that hey guys welcome back to online calvary we are so glad that you joined us and i hope that you're enjoying quarantine as much as all the rest of us are and so uh but i want to share some things with you today that i think are going to bless you encourage you and so where do you begin well let's start we'll start on my birthday a few years ago where my kids threw me a surprise party After the food, the cake, the fun, there was a Patriots game on TV. Now, those of you that attend Calvary know that I'm from Boston. I'm a big Patriots fan, and I rarely get to see them because a lot of times they don't air the games or I got something going on or whatnot. So my wife, while we're having this party, starts talking to my brother-in-law about finding a handyman. And my brother-in-law says, well, what do you need done? And she says, well, the, the toilet in the kid's bathroom is moving. And, you know, apparently the previous owners had laid um, wood down, uh, wood flooring in the bathroom. I don't, I don't understand why people do things like that. But she's like, so we need to take that out. And then I got to fix the toilet. So um, he just starts tearing it up in the middle of this birthday party. And then my wife comes over to me and says, "Hey, you know, you should really help them." And I and I said, uh, "But it, it's it's the Patriots, and it's it's my birthday." And then I hear things like, "You know, imagine you know wood flooring being torn up." So I go over, I help them tear it up. It's not a big bathroom, so we we take care of it. And then um, he we unscrew the toilet, we turn the water off, unscrew the toilet, and then. Uh, he has me grab this like plastic ring that is the connector between my toilet and the sewage line. And uh, now friends, let me just tell you something. There are some things in life that should never be seen. And that's one of them. So we go to Home Depot. And we got to buy a bunch of stuff. Then we start reinstalling the toilet after we take the old one out. And then there's this wax ring that is there that has to be one of the nastiest things that I've ever seen. And Carrie comes in and says, your hands smell like poop. And I said, oh no, sister, that's not poop. That's 10-year-old poop that I've got on my hands from before we even lived here. So this is not even our family stuff this is other people's business and so now when it's all said and done and and my brother-in-law fixed it and I was the helper and uh my wife had figured out she's I'm she was so apologetic she's like Bob I had no idea that Jim was gonna do this and tear up the bathroom tonight and 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 all that and and I, I kind of put this project on you on your birthday and and then I said well the good news is, if my 39th birthday started out like this, being covered in 10-year-old poop, it can only get better from here. And, and, and he, listen, and I tell you that, to tell you that this is one of the reasons, by the way, why couples have problems, is because this is why friends get into arguments. This is why bosses and employees have conflict. This is why family members secretly can't get along or can't stand each other. It's not that the proverbial toilet uh, doesn't need to be fixed. It's that we have expectations. We have expectations about how things should be fixed, when things should be fixed, and when our expectations aren't met. That's when conflict begins. This is why wives tell their husbands uh, to do certain things or to say certain things. And then when I say like, but that you want your husband to do that, why don't you just tell your husband what you want him to do? And they'll say, but I just want him to do those things without me have to tell him. I want it to come naturally to him. Now, Dear woman, listen to me. How long have you been married to this man? If he hasn't gotten it by now, he isn't going to get it. I have a friend, and uh, I have one friend. No, I I have a friend, and his wife tells him, and she'll she'll say this to him. She'll say, hey, tomorrow night you're going to get dressed up, and I'm going to get dressed up, and you're going to take me out to a nice restaurant. And when you get home to pick me up for this nice restaurant, I'm going to be dressed up. and You're going to tell me that I look beautiful. And I'm going to say thank you. And we're going to have a nice night. And so he'll tell me this. And I'll say, so what happens? He goes, well, I get home. And she's dressed up. And I get dressed up. I tell her that she looks beautiful. And she's like, really? You think so? And, and it's just, and I'm telling you. And these people have very few problems. Why? Because it's like, I'm just telling the guy what he needs to do. And, and, and here's the point, right? And it's not that... Uh, either of us have done anything wrong per se. It's that a lot of times there's this expectation of what we thought and then we're disappointed when it didn't happen, when our expectation wasn't met and this is when the conflict began. And, And if we're being really honest, we would say that this can even happen in our relationship with God. We prayed, we had an expectation that God would answer a certain way and do a certain thing and then when he didn't do it that way, we thought there might be a problem with God. I mean, if we're honest, we've never even considered that we might not have all the information, and from our perspective, you know, because things kind of look pretty cut and dry, but in God's master plan, there are other moving parts that we are not privy to, that we have not considered, and that's part of what happens in just kind of the mystery of God's will. Tim Keller, author of many books, uh, including one called The Reason for God, he, he wrote these words. He said, if we knew what God knows, then we would ask for what God gives us. Say it again. If we knew what God knows, then we would ask for what God gives us. And see, the gap between what we want and what God gives, this this space in between, is the expectation that we want met. And and listen, that expectation takes many, many different forms that we're going to talk about today. And so I want to tell you where we are in the story. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We started back at Christmas, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, at Christmas time, and we've been working our way through the ministry and the life of Jesus. And we found our way to Palm Sunday, and that's what we celebrate today. Next week, we're going to celebrate Good Friday and, of course, Easter and the resurrection. And today is a special day because Palm Sunday is the day that we remember when Jesus revealed himself to be israel's messiah now this day is different than most days and if you read the gospels then you know that at other times jesus didn't want attention drawn to him he would actually perform a miracle and tell people not to say anything there was a moment that jesus performed a miracle and the people it says tried to make him king by force but then jesus slipped away but today is different Today is different because today is the day that he has prepared for this moment. He's letting everyone know that the prayer that Israel has been praying for now 1,500 years is about to be answered. But, and there is a pretty significant but here, and that is this. But the Messiah that they've been expecting isn't the Messiah who showed up. And the Messiah that they were expecting, and the Messiah that showed up, the space between, their expectation, this is where a problem lies. And and in the text that we're going to look at, we're going to see three groups of people. We're going to see a group of people that are expecting the Messiah. We're going to see a group of people that are antagonistic towards him. And another group of people, sadly, that are indifferent towards him altogether. So we're going to take the whole story so we can get the whole picture, and then we'll talk about it. And uh, so we'll start in Chapter 19 of Luke in verse 28. Here's what we read. It says, And when he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet. That is the Mount of Olives. And he set Two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, and where you enter it, you will find a colt tied, which no one has ever sat. Loose it. And bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? then you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent their way and found it, just as he said to them, and as they were loosing the colt, the owner of it said, Why are you loosing the colt? And he said, The Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus. And they threw their own clothes on the colt and set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as now he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. If you pause there and give me your attention. Now listen, there's a few moving parts here that are important for us to understand the story. First, Jesus is presenting himself as the Messiah in picture form which is very typical in the Eastern culture. Now, Jesus shows up riding on a colt or a young donkey. Now, this is important to note. In that culture, kings rode in on white horses. This was the symbol of victory. To ride in on a donkey meant that the king was coming to make peace. And so Jesus is doing something much bigger uh, in the scene than they even realize. It has much bigger implications than the disciples, I think, even understood in the moment. Now, Matthew's gospel records that Jesus riding in on a donkey is a fulfillment. You'll see this in Matthew chapter 21, that it's a fulfillment of a prophecy from the book of Zechariah. And I'll read you the Zechariah passage that says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Shout, O daughter uh, of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Why is this a picture? It's a picture for a couple of reasons. One, Jesus is presenting himself as a picture of the Messiah. Number one, it was a picture of the son of David. Now the Messiah is called the son of David. So Jews look to the life of Solomon as for events that matched who the Messiah was. In fact, you see this at the very beginning of Solomon's reign. In 1 Kings, you'll see it in the notes if you're looking on the Calvary app or you downloaded it on uh, onlinecalvary.com. It says, Then the king David ordered, Call Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. And then they came into the king's presence. The king said to him, Take Solomon and my officials down to Gihon Spring. "'Solomon is to ride my own mule, "'and there Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet "'are to anoint him king over Israel.' blow the ram's horn and shout, long live King Solomon. Then they escorted him back there and he will sit on my throne and he will succeed me as king for I have appointed him to be the ruler over Israel and Judah. So David is setting Solomon up to be king and he's picturing Solomon as this anointed king of Israel and he rides in on David's mule and Jesus is mimicking that, picturing that. The second thing is, is, is that it was a picture of the prophet like Moses. Moses said, and this is in the book of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, that a prophet would rise up like Moses who would come later, and Jews have understood that to be the Messiah. Now, uh, in Exodus chapter 4, here's what it says. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, go. Return to Egypt, for all the men who have sought your life are dead. And then Moses took his wife, his sons, set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. Jesus is giving the people the picture that they need, even though it's not the picture that they wanted. What they wanted was a king that would execute judgment. They wanted a king that would give them their land back, give them sovereignty and freedom, and overthrow the Roman yoke. Instead, he's coming as a king that would absorb judgment on the cross, that would make peace. And this is the challenge that we all have. When we pray, we ask God for an answer, and he gives us something different than what we had hoped for. And it's our moment to decide if he is our king. And if he is, then we will trust him even if he's doing something different than what we hoped that he would do. Because let's be honest, usually our role is our, the route that we want to take is the route of least resistance. God's route is different than that. God's route is the route of character and faith building, and this is usually where the gap is. Now, see, the, the way it works is, when you look, we, we're looking for the shortcuts. When the children of Israel were leaving Egypt, when they were leaving Egypt, there was actually a much shorter way that from egypt to the promised land than the way that they took there was a way that was called the via maris the via maris was called the way by the sea and they could have uh, kind of hugged the mediterranean sea taken it all the way up and they would have gotten to the promised land in two weeks so the question is why did they go a route that involved crossing the red sea then being without water and then having another situation i mean why would they take a situation that would lead them for two years to get there and then of course they disobeyed once they got there and then there was 38 years walking around in the book of exodus chapter 13 here's what it says it says then it came to pass when pharaoh had let the people go that god did not lead them by the way of the land of the philistines even though that was near for god said lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. And so God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the sea. Now listen, there's this shortcut to the land of Israel, but God doesn't have them take the shortcut. Why? Because two weeks wasn't enough time to get them ready for the promised land. They had, God had taken them out of Egypt, but it was gonna take a little more time to get Egypt out of them. They needed to see God part the Red Sea. God needed to deposit Pharaoh's army in there. They needed provision of manna every day. And God needed to lead the people with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They needed to win a few battles on the way to the promised land so that when they finally got there, they really believed that God would fight for them. Listen, God isn't stalling. God is preparing you. God is setting you up for future victories. And sometimes what happens is we kind of look at other people and think, well, it seems like they got the shortcut. And listen, we have no idea if they got the shortcut. We're looking at somebody else's highlight reel when all we have to compare it to is our own backstory. God is doing a work in you. And each day is this place that's getting you closer and closer to what he wants to do in your life as you enter your promised land. So what does that mean for us? Three things as we close. Here's what it's going to be. Here's number one. Number one is praise God for what he's doing, not what you're expecting. The disciples, these, the people of Israel, were looking for a Messiah that would overthrow the Roman yoke, bring independence and sovereignty, and that was not Jesus' mission. But instead of arguing or protesting it, listen, they decided to engage in what God was doing. And this, I think, is one of the keys to really experiencing God in your life. Instead of working and trying and scheming to get God to bless what you're doing, instead, get involved in what God is already blessing. You see, sometimes we will think, and, and we don't say this publicly because we're Christians, and we, but we'll, we'll say like, man, I just feel like God has forgotten me. I feel like God isn't working. And so I've got to kind of take matters into my own hands when the truth is, is that God is at work. And here's the thing that I've learned is that gratitude is a muscle that needs to be trained. It's easy to see everything you don't have, but it takes gratitude to see the things that you've been blessed with. That's why in John chapter five, Jesus said, my father has been working until now and I have been working. And the litmus test of trust in our lives is the gratitude that we have because sometimes, listen, God is working. We just don't see it well uh, some of you know that before planting a church uh uh, planting calvary uh, i ran a bible college and so when we were when i was running the college we had a space that we shared with another company for a while it was a uh a construction company and so at the beginning they had this reception desk and no one sat at the reception desk but there was this huge executive leather chair that they that was there I had this kind of broken down chair, and so I talked to the guy who was the facilities manager, and I said, hey, would it be okay if, if I could have that chair? And he goes, yeah, I don't see a problem with it. Let me just talk to somebody. Uh, it might take me a little bit of time, but I can, I can get it to you. So, you know, a week goes by, and nothing. Two weeks go by, nothing. A month goes by, nothing. Six weeks go by, nothing. Two months go by, and still no chair. I got so fed up one day I went to Office Depot during my lunch break and I bought a chair strapped it to the roof of my car brought it back to the college and I'm pushing this giant box that I got to start putting together the chair I push it in I open my door true story and the executive chair is behind my desk and now I got a problem and I'm like no What are the chances that it would be the one day that I went out anyway? So I decide I'm gonna build the chair and I'm just gonna give the chair to my assistant and no one will be any of the wiser. So I am building the chair. Now, one thing you have to know about me is that I'm a typical man, which means that I don't read instructions. I know what chairs look like. And so I start building this chair. Well, probably about an hour, hour and a half later, I'm on the floor trying to screw the last few things in. And the facilities manager walks in, and I've got this chair that I'm building. And, he, and he's like, "Hey, what, what are you what are you doing?" And, and I'm like, "Nothing. I'm just laying down on the floor." What are you doing? And and he's he says, "Did you go out and buy a chair?" And I'm like, "What would make you think that I, I bought a chair?" He's like, "Well, I, you know. Anyway, so I'm like, yeah, I, I bought." And he's like, "Why didn't you trust me? I told you it would take me a little bit of time." Uh, listen, I felt so guilty. This is a true story. I kept the chair that I bought and I gave the executive chair to my assistant and I never sat in it again because I felt, I, I felt so guilty about it. And listen, here's the, here's the point, is that listen, my dissatisfaction with his timing led to a bad decision, why? Because of the space between, it was because of the expectations and the space between my desire and reality was not filled with trust. It was filled with ingratitude. It was filled with a lack of patience. And many times, the lack of joy that we have comes from our inability to deal with the space between reality and expectation. Here's the second thing I want to tell you. And that is that God's plan is impossible to stop. It's impossible to stop. And it doesn't matter who's trying to stop it. It's impossible to stop. When, the, when Jesus shows up on this donkey and the people start shouting Hosanna. Now Hosanna is a Hebrew word. We don't even bother translating it because uh, it's it's a word that means literally save us now. It's a quotation from the 118th Psalm, which is a messianic Psalm. It's a Psalm that's written about the Messiah where... The, 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 the writer, David, says, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I know that all, in all Christian bookstores that all calendars have every day is that verse. You know, Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day you wake up in the morning. This is the day. Well, that sounds nice, but the reality is it's talking about this day, Palm Sunday, of a specific day when the Messiah was revealed. This is why the enemies of Jesus, these Pharisees who did not believe in Jesus, they're saying, command your disciples to stop. And Jesus is saying, don't you understand that if I command them to stop, that the very rocks are going to cry out because all of creation has been waiting for this moment? Because listen, it was a proclamation. Even the enemies of Jesus knew that it was a proclamation that Jesus was the Messiah. And it's just the point that, listen, we were created to celebrate. We were created to shout and to sing. This is why, have you noticed this? That uh, we, we will look for any reason to celebrate. I mean, every day on the calendar is the national something or something or other day. Like this week, all right? April 1st was National Sourdough Day. April 2nd was National Peanut Butter and Jelly Day. uh, April 3rd was National Chocolate Mousse Day. April 4th was National Vitamin C Day. I don't even know, anyway. Um, Today, Sunday, is National Geology Day, so you know today's gonna rock. Uh, So so science jokes are money in the bank. Um, And then, uh, and if you've been wondering, I was wondering I wonder if there's a National Hot Dog Day. And I don't know why I was thinking about that this week. Maybe I was cooking hot dogs. July 22nd is National Hot Dog Day according to the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council. Now, can we just take a moment and acknowledge that there is a group called the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council? What I want to know is, A, how do I become a member? And B, what are the problems that we're trying to solve? here with the Hot Dog and Sausage Council. Are we trying? Anyway, and so this is gonna lead me down a bad path if I don't stay focused. Now, and here's the point. We were created to celebrate. And this is the moment in history. This is the moment, if there ever was a moment that needed celebrating when Jesus presented himself as the Messiah. And if they didn't, the very rocks would cry out because all of creation has been waiting for this moment. You see, worship is magnifying God. And you know what happens when I magnify something? I make something larger. And when I magnify and enlarge God's presence in my life, you know what happens? Everything else gets smaller. So maybe we need to worship more. And when we do, worry and stress and uncertainty and the space between reality and my expectations begins to shrink and here's the last thing i 'm going to tell you, and then we 're done, and that is that it 's time to wake up to god 's plan. Jesus gets to see the entire city of Jerusalem as he 's riding in and, and and most people are just living their lives, oblivious to the, to the magnitude of the day, and Jesus weeps. Because he sees a future that's coming when the city is going to be overtaken by Rome. And it would just be less than 40 years before that happened, when the city was taken and decimated. And you know what people were going to say on that day? Man, where's God? Where's God on this? Look at these problems. And, And Jesus is weeping because he's saying, I'm right here. He's weeping because they're missing the moment that could have changed their lives. And they'll be saying, where's God? 40 years from now when this whole thing goes down but you know four days from now in the story they'll be shouting crucify him because Jesus is the Messiah that we needed but wasn't the one that they wanted that's why in Matthew chapter 27 Pontius Pilate says which of the two do you want me to release to you and they said Barabbas And Pilate said to them, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said to him, let him be crucified. Barabbas, if you're not aware, was, Barabbas was an insurrectionist. We would call him a terrorist. He wanted to overthrow Rome. He wanted to kill anyone who conspired with Rome and sold out Israel for power or wealth. The name Barabbas, if you're not aware, is a Hebrew, uh, it's a Hebrew name. It's two words, Bar and Abba. Bar in Hebrew means son. Abba means father. So the offer is being made. He's saying, do you want Jesus, son of man, son of the heavenly father, or do you want Barabbas, son of the father? And listen, I mean, why would they choose Barabbas? Why would they choose Barabbas over, a murderer over Jesus, the healer? Because Barabbas was doing the thing that they wanted because Jesus is the Messiah that they needed. but Barabbas looked like the Messiah that they wanted. You see, Jesus was talking about another kingdom altogether. And the thought of another kingdom was not as enticing as getting their own land back and their own sovereignty back. You see, but the reality is is that we choose Barabbas over Jesus whenever we decide to do things our way. Whenever we decide that the space between reality and my expectations isn't being met fast enough, we decide that we're going to be the one that fills that gap. We choose Barabbas over Jesus when we ignore what God says and think that there's some kind of exception for us. And, well, I'm just going to do it this way because, well, I don't know that God recognizes my circumstance. We choose Barabbas over Jesus when we throw in the towel in our marriages because we think it got too hard. We choose Barabbas over Jesus when we think that what this world offers is better than the abundant life that Jesus freely gives. And I'm going to tell you something that the Barabbases of this world always overpromise and underdeliver. But the real Jesus is offering real life right now. And maybe today is your moment to give your life to Jesus or recommit your life to him. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that very reality, that we could choose you, invite you to come into our lives, to just say, God, forgive me for all I've done because I believe that Jesus died for me. Lord, a simple prayer like that, we know that you will hear, that you will answer and act, and you'll transform our lives forever. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today, you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations! It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church wanna help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.